1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. Paul speaks, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As, pro- as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to read together again, so can I ask you to look up 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's on page 965 if you're using a church Bible, Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll be reading from verse 7. By way of background to these verses, let me just remind you of some events from the book of Exodus. In Exodus 34, Moses goes up uh, Mount Sinai to receive the law from God, and we're told that when he comes down the mountain um, with the tablets of stone, although he doesn't realize it, his face is shining, physically shining, um, his skin shining out. Uh, He told the people what God had said, and then he put a veil over his face. And then we read, uh, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, in the tent of meeting that is, he would remove the veil until he came out, and when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And then he would put the veil back on until the next time that he went in to speak to the Lord. So, so we need to just know that background as we come now to read from 2 Corinthians 3, from verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. 
Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please keep that uh, passage before you as we pray now and then come to consider it together. Let's, let's pray. God, our Father, we ask that You would help us, that even this morning we would know something of uh, what we've just read, that enlightening uh, power and presence of Your Spirit to help us to understand Your Word. And we pray for our younger ones in with us this morning. This is a a, a hard uh, passage to think on in some ways, and uh, they join us at the end of a series that they haven't heard the, the rest of it, so we ask that You would help them this morning. Uh, that you would help them as they follow on the sheet and just give them understanding, work in their hearts, speak to them, we pray, and speak to all of us um, as we come now to your Word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, and do us good, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It is, uh, for the younger ones, it is a trickier passage, um, trickier uh, theme that we're thinking about this morning, but uh, you have the sheet there, so do your best with that, and uh, maybe if there's a mum or dad nearby, they can, uh, they can give you some help as we uh, look at this together. In 1734, the great New England preacher Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on Matthew 16 17. Uh, it's the passage where, where Peter has just professed Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus says to him, blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. You didn't just figure this out in a normal human way using your brain cells, but rather God himself revealed this truth to you. Now, in those days, they they loved short and snappy titles, so Jonathan Edwards gave his sermon the title, A Divine and Supernatural Light 
immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God, shown to be both scriptural and rational doctrine. It's better known as a divine and supernatural light. Part of what Edwards sought to show in that sermon was that the knowledge of God is granted by God. There is a divine and supernatural light which God gives to His people, and by that light we receive what Edwards called a real sense of the excellency of God and Jesus Christ, and of the work of redemption and the ways and works of God revealed in the gospel. There is a divine and superlative glory in these things, an excellency that is of a vastly higher kind and more sublime nature than in any other things. He that is spiritually enlightened, this is the important part, he that is spiritually enlightened does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. There is not only a rational belief that God is holy and that holiness is a good thing, there is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness. And to explain his meaning as clearly as he could, Edwards used an illustration about honey. It is possible to consent rationally to the proposition that honey is sweet, maybe because you've done a survey and a hundred people have said so, or, or because you've studied the chemical composition of honey, or, or because you're an expert in the way that the taste buds on your tongue send signals to your brain to tell you what's going on but it's a different thing altogether, isn't it? To taste the sweetness of honey. Analyze it all you like. You can think about it all you like, but, but to taste the sweetness of it and experience it for yourself is something else altogether. Edward says, thus, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. In one sense, what he's talking about is the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. To know God means to taste the heart-satisfying beauty of His character and and the soul-stirring perfection of His ways and the pulse-quickening glory of everything that He is is to stand in awe of His holiness and to be thrilled by His loveliness and to be delighted by who He is. For that, we need to know Him in the sense of genuinely encountering Him, not analyzing Him from a distance, but but experiencing Him, which is what this short series has been about. I said last week that, spiritually speaking, there there are downward spirals and upward spirals. There's a terrible downward spiral in which we sin against God and drift away from Him, and so we, sin, we tend then to sin against Him more, and so we tend to drift away from Him more, and, and, and on it goes. But, but I also said there's a glorious upward spiral in which we love God, and so we pattern our lives after Him. And, and patterning our lives after Him, we're, we're helped to grow in love for God, We come to love Him more, and so we pattern our lives after Him more and come to love holiness more, and and so are drawn more to the loveliness of God, and and on it goes up and up. And this morning, in a sense, what we're doing as we finish this series is we're, we're just following that spiral. We're following that trajectory. 
as we look at several passages that, that speak of what the gospel does for us in, in just stunning ways. These passages describe the possibility of, of an intimacy with the living God, which if God himself didn't hold it out to us, we would never dare to dream might be possible. Someone has put it this way, the reward of a close walk with God, I wonder what you think should come next, is, is all my dreams fulfilled? Is a happy life? Is, is health? Is, is something else that He's going to give me in heaven? The reward of a close walk with God is a closer walk with God. The reward of greater obedience is a greater trust calling for further obedience. Always the reward is more of the same and essentially more of God in the same. Always it is, in C.S. Lewis's words, further up and further in. If you know the Narnia books, that's the great cry, isn't it, at the end of the, the final book, the end of the last battle, as the children arrive in the new creation. The cry is, come further up and further in, come in, enjoy this, this is yours. So we're going to look at this in, in three stages. We're going to start with the passage we just read in 2 Corinthians 3 to 4, and then we'll, we'll come to 1 Corinthians 13 later. Um, our first point is nothing new in this series, but I just want, to, want us to be clear and to be reminded as we conclude that to know God is a glorious thing. To know God is a glorious thing. There in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament the way that God related to His people before the coming of Christ. Remember that a covenant is just a, a relationship. It's a special relationship that God gives to make it possible for sinful people to relate to a holy God. Uh, covenants are all about knowing God. They're, they're, they're ways of knowing God. And, and here Paul says at verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, that this old covenant came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. It was, a, it was an amazing thing that God should meet with a man, presence Himself with a man. And it was a wonderful thing that God was showing Himself in this way to His people. It was literally dazzlingly glorious. And yet, what does He then say? He then says that what followed that covenant was so much more glorious that no sane person could ever again be impressed by what had happened with the old covenant. It was only ever a temporary arrangement. It was being brought to an end, verse 7, verse 11. Why? Because although it made it possible for Israel to relate to God, and it was crucial what that covenant did not lead to was final provision for the forgiveness of sin. That's why, glorious as it was, do you sense the tension here? This is a glorious covenant, Moses' face shining forth, but Paul refers to it as the ministry of death, verse 7. The ministry of condemnation, verse 9. Its, its ultimate outcome was not to provide salvation, Something else would be needed for that. Its ultimate outcome was, was to demonstrate the justice of the judgment of God. It led to death and condemnation. 
Nonetheless, it was genuinely glorious, but Paul tells us at verse 10 what's changed. In this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Something else has happened which is just so magnificent that the shining face of Moses just doesn't look impressive anymore. What has happened? Well, for that, move on to chapter 4, verse 4. The purpose of God in the new covenant is that we should see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The new covenant still demonstrates the justice and righteousness of God because sin is punished in Christ, but it also puts on display in a new way the mercy and grace of God towards sinners because sin is punished in Christ, not in us. And, and, and it does all of this not in a passing way, but in a permanent way. And verse 6 tells us how. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. So, this, this Word of God, this voice of God that created all light in the first place, that has this awesome power, God then speaks into our hearts God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How can the shining face of Moses look impressive when we now have, when we now see by faith the face of Christ Himself? Do you see the, the difference? It's the difference between the moon and the sun, isn't it? The face of Moses reflected the glory of God. The face of Christ shines with the glory of God. The the, the moon's great at night, isn't it? The moon looks bright in the middle of a dark night. But but compare it to 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 the blazing noonday sun. So much does the, the glory of the new covenant surpass the glory of the old covenant. So, through Jesus, we see the glory of God. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of His being. As we come to know Jesus, we're coming to know God. We're gazing on His glory. What is is this glory that we're speaking of? It is the sum total of all the excellencies of God. It's all that He is and all the magnificence of it. His beauty and wisdom and justice and righteousness and holiness and mercy and compassion, everything. And and remember that in, in all of this, what Paul is telling us the gospel is giving to us is not an intellectual knowledge of these things, but the taste of them. This is, this is the honey on the tongue. He, he shines His light in our hearts. A divine and supernatural light is given to us that by it we come to experience a real sense of what Edwards called the excellency of God, the loveliness of His holiness. So, 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 to come to know this God is, is, a, is a breathlessly wonderful thing. It's what we were made for. It should be our highest ambition in life and in death because it's God's highest ambition for us. It's what He wants for us above all else. He says to His people in Hosea 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is saying, I, what I want for you above all else is the knowledge of God. 
And, and, and the sacrifices and the burnt offerings, if they, don't, if they don't take you there, are pointless. I don't want those. I want to know you, and I want you to know me. Or, or listen to this from Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. To know God is just a glorious thing. But that's not all that's held out to us. The gift of the gospel is a growing knowledge of God, that, that upward spiral by which we draw closer and closer to Him. And so here's the second stage of the trajectory this morning. To grow in the knowledge of God is an even more glorious thing. We're looking now at the, the middle section of that 2 Corinthians passage, chapter 3, 12 to 18. Paul says here that unbelieving Israelites were unable to follow where the old covenant was meant to take them. It was never meant to save them, finally. It was a ministry of condemnation and death because the law was designed to drive them to the Savior they needed. They weren't supposed to look at the law and say, oh, look, we've, we've obeyed the law. Everything's fine we're going to be okay. They were meant to look to the law and say, we are lost. We are lawbreakers. We deserve the judgment of God, and so we need a Savior. But, says Paul, it's as if there was a veil drawn over their hearts. They couldn't, they couldn't see the way to Christ. And where that happens, we're lost. Through Christ, he says, the veil is taken away. And what happens then? This is the crucial part. Look at what he says in verse 18. With the veil taken away, we see Christ. So, so he, he then says, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding the glory of the Lord being transformed into the same image. Notice what it is that drives the upward spiral of knowing God. It is beholding the glory of Christ. Beholding the glory of Christ. Now, that obviously is a looking by faith and not by sight. Christ is here with us right now, but He is not here with us in a physical body. And so, we look uh, by faith and not by sight, we, but, but by faith we behold Him. God has manifested Himself to us in Christ in, in a fuller and richer and more glorious way, and, and so much so that as we behold Christ by faith, one of the results of that beholding is that we become more like Him. There's not, there's not very much more crucial to the Christian life than that. As we behold Christ by faith, we become more like Him. John Piper once said this, take a moment to resolve that you will be intentional about what your mind considers. It will dwell on something, and what it dwells on it becomes like.
guys in, in Generate and Younger, hear that. Please hear that. Take a moment to consider what your mind dwells on, because it will dwell on something, and what it dwells on, it becomes like. That is just how we're made. If our minds dwell on ugly things, we become ugly. Don't think you can indulge in gossip about people and it won't change your character, because it will. It will make you more and more judgmental and self-righteous. Men, boys, don't think you can look at stuff online that you shouldn't be looking at and it won't change you because it will. It will make you more selfish and stupid and depraved. Don't think you can compromise with materialism and it won't change you because it will. It will make you more shallow and soulless. Your mind will dwell on something. What it dwells on, it becomes like. But in that very warning, is there not also just supreme hope? Where should our minds dwell? Hebrews 3, 1, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Hebrews 12, 3, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Or, or if you want that put in a slightly different way, Philippians 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That, that's just the same instruction in a different form because it's describing Christ, isn't it? Above all else, it's Christ who is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and worthy of praise. Fix your mind on Him, and what will happen? Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Give yourself to knowing Christ, and you will become more like Christ. Becoming more like Christ will expand your capacity to know Him more. Always the reward is more of the same, farther up and farther in. Nothing in any of this, nothing is changing in God. God cannot become the tiniest fraction more glorious than He already is. What's changing is our capacity to comprehend Him, our capacity to know Him. What, what lies at the heart of our lack of knowledge of God? It's not, it's not intellectual deficiency, is it? It's sin. That, that's what needs to be dealt with if we're to know God. Only as we're progressively released from the grip of sin can we gain the capacity to grow in the knowledge of God. So, we, we look to Christ. We're that little bit more transformed into His image. That means that our taste for the beauty of Christ grows, and we look to Him more. And as we look to Him more, we're transformed more. And, and so, we look to Him more, and on and on it goes. mentioned a few weeks ago, actually in connection with suffering, significant, I think, mentioned a few weeks ago um, Samuel Rutherford. It's one of the features of his writing um, that he was a man utterly enraptured with Christ. 
if you read anything of Rutherford, um, that, that just hits you in the face. Um, there, there's a famous comment by an English merchant who was traveling in Scotland, and, and he went to different places. Um, he said, I came to Irvine. There was a minister in Irvine called David Dixon. He said, I came to Irvine and heard a well-favored, proper old man with a long beard. And that man showed me all my heart. Then I went to St. Andrews. There's a minister there called Robert Blair. Then I went to St. Andrews where I heard a sweet, majestic-looking man, and he showed me the majesty of God. After him, I heard a little, fair man, and he showed me the loveliness of Christ. That was Rutherford's ministry. That was Rutherford's obsession the loveliness of Christ. And if you read his writings, if you read his letters, he's just, he, he just about breaks the English language trying to express something of it. Put the beauty of 10,000, thousand worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden in one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be and yet, it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain is to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. When 20,000 millions of heaven's lovers have worked their hearts threadbare of love, all is nothing, less than nothing, to His matchless worth and excellency. Oh, so broad and so deep as the sea His desirable loveliness is. Rutherford just goes on. It goes on like that, page after page after page. You just you can't find big enough words to express the loveliness of Christ. To know God is a glorious thing. To grow in the knowledge of God is an even more glorious thing. But God is not yet finished with His promises. He has more for us. Let me ask you this. What do you tend to picture when you think of a person? A particular person that you know? How do you recognize a person? You, you meet someone in the street, do you? asked to inspect the back of their left heel, and you go, ah, Norman. No. It's all about the face, isn't it? We interact with one another by our, by our faces. We recognize one another by our faces. The, the face is, is the window to the world. We look out through it, and the world looks in through it. The Bible holds out to us an astonishing prospect. And for this, we turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 13, 12. First Corinthians 13, 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. That's what we saw before. You have the, the glory of the old covenant. You have the greater glory of the new covenant. But still, we walk by faith and not by sight. Still we sin, and so we dim our vision of God. Still we're subject to all the limitations of what it is to be fallen. God's process of renewing us is not yet complete. We see in a mirror, I'm told that Corinth was, uh, was famous apparently as a production center for some of the finest bronze mirrors in the ancient world. A good mirror is a good thing. It gives a good and clear and accurate reflection of a person, but a reflection is not a person. 
However good a reflection is, it's only a reflection. You can't have a relationship with a reflection. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The prospect that the Bible holds out to God's people is not that we will one day have the privilege of floating about disembodied in an ethereal atmosphere with Enya playing in the background in the vague proximity of some divine glow. Face to face. We shall see God face to face. That is, we shall have a direct and clear and uninterrupted knowledge of God. God is spirit. Jesus has a face. In that sense, we can look directly into the face of Jesus in, in the sense of God, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, we, we have to take that language figuratively, but it's figurative, but it's real. It's a direct and clear and uninterrupted knowledge of God in His presence. Most, most translations say we will know fully even as we have been fully known. Now, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we know God completely, because if we did, we'd be God, wouldn't we? Only God knows God completely. We will always be finite creatures straining towards an infinite God. Um, but, but what it means, the word Paul uses refers to arriving at knowledge. It refers to actually seeing and know, actually seeing rather than seeing in a mirror dimly. It, it refers to actually meeting rather than only encountering in a reflection. No longer will sin dim our vision of God. We will arrive at our full capacity to know Him. Again, He hasn't changed, but we have changed. The, the, the process that He's started in us will be brought to completion. We, we, we read a few weeks back, and we were reading in 1 John. Um, now, think about this. As we behold Christ, we become more like Him. Listen to what John says. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. That process is complete. We're no longer looking by faith. We, we will see Him, and seeing Him, we will be transformed into His likeness. We will become like Him, and becoming like Him, we will have the capacity to know Him and to know God, even as He does. I think it's, it's hard to be too dogmatic about heaven, isn't it, always? Um, but I think that, that even then, I, I, knowing God will not be a static thing. I think there will always be a going further up and further in. But we will, we will have, in a different sense, we will have arrived. That's the meaning of that word, fully known. We will have arrived at knowledge. We will have arrived, we will have attained a new kind of knowledge, which is the glory of all glories. 
and all sorts of things will, will pass away. We, we have all sorts of strange notions about God, don't we? And, and all of us individually, I mean, based on our own life experiences and personalities and, and all the rest of it, we hear that God is Father, and, you know, depending on what your experience of life is, that can impact that, can't it? That one day we will know what it means that God is Father. We hear that God is righteous and holy, and we can, we can gain a wrong impression of Him as being a, a fault-finding, harsh God. That, all of those images will go. All, all of our false notions about God will go, and we will see Him as He is. We will arrive at knowledge. We will know Him, and, and all that will be left will be glory and beauty beyond anything we've ever dreamed of, and there will be no sin to disrupt our knowledge of Him. Is it possible for us now to comprehend this? No, <laughs> it just isn't because we don't have the capacity. But we will be given the capacity to know God in this new way and to delight in Him for unending ages of eternity. Hard to imagine that, isn't it? But so it will be. I mentioned uh, Narnia earlier on. Some of you will know the way that C.S. Lewis ended that series of books, but let me just remind you of the last paragraph of the last book. The children have been going further up and further in. They have met Aslan, the great king. They have met him face to face. Then Aslan turned to them and said, you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been only the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Every day better. Every joy greater. That's what it will be like one day for all who experience the glory of knowing God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our knowledge of you is weak and poor, but we desire you. We desire to know you more. And we know that the, the prayer for the knowledge of you, a prayer that comes from a sincere heart, a prayer that comes from a heart that has weighed the cost and is willing to pay it, a heart that knows the impact of, of knowing God. 
and longs for that change in life. A heart that understands the foundation of knowing God and has come to Christ in repentance and faith. We know that a prayer from this heart that we might know you more is a prayer that you delight to answer. This is your desire for us. Make it our desire, we pray, more and more. Forgive us our paltry ambitions for the things of this world. Give us hearts that long for you. And, and do that, we pray, whether we are, whether we are ten or a or hundred or anything else in between. Do that for us, we pray, that we might love you wholeheartedly, know you, come to know you more, and anticipate that day when we will see you face to face. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.